You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's episode is the latest installment in our series on uh, the history and culture of North Africa, our Tajin series, edited by Graham Cornwell. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to get access to some of the other episodes in that series. And our guest is Dr. Jonathan Wurtson, Assistant Professor of Sociology, History, and International Affairs at Yale University. Dr. Wurtson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's so great to be joining you. Dr. Wurtson is a uh, is actually a graduate of Georgetown University History Department, much like myself. Very nice to speak to a Georgetown alum here at Yale. And um, he's the author of a new book entitled Making Morocco, Colonial Intervention and the Politics of Identity. That's out from Cornell University Press. Congratulations on the publication. Thanks so much. Well, I'm really looking forward to discussing this book with you today, Jonathan. And for our listeners, we're going we're gonna to touch on a couple major themes in the history of 20th century Morocco, and specifically the protectorate period, the period in which uh, France and Spain were most uh, colonially present in Morocco during the first half of the 20th century, let's say. So in Making Morocco, uh, Jonathan, you, you deal with uh, themes and identity and specific components of identity such as religion, of course, Islam, and, and the status of communities such as Jews in Morocco, uh, ethnicity with regard to Arabs and Berbers, territory, sort of the territorialization of Morocco, uh, and, and the identity of the Moroccan monarchy. And a bit later on in the podcast, we'll discuss uh, these themes within the colonial period and sort of the ramifications for understanding Morocco today. Um, but before we do, I'd like to um, sort of introduce our listeners to your, your framing of the topic in Making Morocco, your, your new approach to the study of uh, colonialism uh, in North Africa during the, uh, the 20th century. So in the introduction to your work, one of the sort of contentions you make is that often colonialism, uh, broadly or in, or in North Africa, is studied mainly from one of two perspectives, one being uh, a state-centered approach to the colonial state, either critical or maybe less critical in some cases, um, and the other, a sort of history from below, studying um, colonialism through uh, the vantage point of subjects. And the argument you make is for a new way of approaching the subject of colonialism in North Africa, which is a more interactive model, is what you call it. And I was very intrigued by this uh, notion you put out in the beginning of, of studying colonial intervention and the making of what you call a political field in Morocco. Why don't you introduce this idea of the political field and what you mean by it and, and how you uh, employ it in this book? Sure. I was trying to figure out a way to put together the different components, the different moving parts uh, that, are, that are in play uh, in this period in Moroccan history. And what I found was that with colonial intervention in Morocco is somewhat unique in that you have two different colonial powers involved uh, with France and Spain mm -hmm. uh, taking control over different zones within the what becomes Moroccan territory. Mm -hmm. Um, in trying to figure out a way to tell a story about that, as you mentioned, that puts together the two pieces, and that's neither purely a top-down or a bottom-up, but that looks mm -hmm. at at the way that state actors and society-based actors are coming, being brought together inside of a, a space, inside of a an economy, inside of different institutions, etc., that uh, I've felt was profoundly influencing and uh, transforming notions of identity mm -hmm. within Moroccan society. Sure. So I, I, I use the idea of a colonial political field, which evokes, you know, I think most commonly for, for most people is, is a Bordeauxian uh, idea of a Pierre Bordeaux's understanding of a field uh, that I don't exactly go with. Um, I kind of expand that out and really liked something that Sami Zubeda talks about, in looking at the British mandate and the creation of a, what he looks at as a national political field yeah. in Iraq. And to build off of that and to bring in kind of three dimensions to what I see happening in the Moroccan, what, what I'm calling the Moroccan colonial political field, 
one aspect of that is space. And so mm-hmm. with colonial intervention, and this takes place over time, that the French and the Spanish, through military conquest, incorporate a territory, incorporate populations into a territory that are, uh, by the mid-1930s, been, you know, the state has achieved close to a monopoly of power within a territorial space that uh, is defined as different zones of this Moroccan protectorate. Mm-hmm. The second aspect of the field is the forces that organize that. So here it's the it's evoking more of, you know, like within uh, physics, you know, kind of an electromagnetic field. Again, a space in which there are different forces in play that are drawing entities within that field in different directions or, or applying force on them. And then the third one is the kind of way we think about a, a field as a field of battle, as a field of play, as a field of competition. And right. so put those putting those things together in that last one, um, kind of within the space, within the different forces on that field, how people, how actors are engaging within that and trying to achieve their own goals, interacting with each other, aligning with each other, protesting, et cetera. That's what I wanted. That, that's a kind of device. That's mm, the yeah. concept through which I wanted to put the the different pieces of the story that I was telling about Morocco. Right, and so approaching, the, so it's approaching the uh, you know the subject of identity as sort of constituted in this field of contention. We could say that's created by the political space exactly of the protectorate. So uh, before we get into some of the details, let's set it up for our listeners. The, the protectorate of Morocco, colonialism has all these different shapes and forms during the 20th century. Right. You know, we have the, you mentioned the mandates uh, in the Levant in Iraq, uh, but in other parts of the Middle East, we have these protectorates. Um, this one in Morocco. So why don't you why don't you give us the um, the broad strokes, right? It's it's established right on the eve of the First World War, right, in 1912, right, uh, and lasts into the 1950s. Correct. Uh, tell us about the protectorate. Well, this is something that's important and something that that's somewhat difficult to work through in thinking about colonialism and setting right. it up as a category in the ways that there are. Uh, similarities or there's a kind of a colonial like in terms of the way that power is uh, applied um, there's there's similarities across that but there's not a single colonial uh, state a single colonial intervention etc there's a, an enormous amount of variety within that variation within that and Morocco kind of comes in as on the tail end of a shift that had happened in the 19th century in which you see from the 1880s forward um, with the British occupation in Egypt, the right. French moving into Tunisia, um, in addition to other entities that are colonial units that are integrated into European empires in the later, latter part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. A shift to a formal apparatus, the, the protectorate form that, and we, maybe we have time to spend uh, more in-depth uh, discussion and kind of difference between direct and indirect rule. I don't want to totally get into that, but this idea of an indirect rule that the protectorate label captures, which maintained the institutional apparatus of the local ruler, the local government, and it somewhat, most perhaps most importantly, maintained a kind of financial arrangement in which because of the sovereignty that is still embedded within the protectorate right. arrangement in Tunisia and Egypt, that the debt structures that had been mm-hmm. put in place uh, earlier in the 19th century uh, were still there so that the British and the French banks and other European banks could still collect yeah. customs, dues, et cetera, which would have been transformed if these places had been brought in to direct rule. So Morocco comes after that really critical shift, which you can think of Algeria, you can think of other interventions that are much more direct. Right. Um, and so this shift in kind of these styles of European colonial in- intervention really affect the type of the formal structure that the French are going to use, the Spanish mm-hmm. are going to use in Morocco. And and what I'm arguing in the book is that actually it's not just a formality, actually has a substantive influence on mm-hmm. what kind of a colonial rule is put in place there. So Morocco benefits from the fact that it is on the northwest corner of Africa, it sits on the Straits of Gibraltar, and it occupied this geostrategic position mm-hmm. along Britain's route to India that had one of the effects of that was that it's preserved from getting colonized directly until very late, if you look at, at the history of Africa and Asia, the rest of the Middle East. Um, and why is that? Because the 
European powers, and this is initially the British and the yeah. French are agreeing to hold off on Morocco. The French have aspirations to extend their rule, right. you know, just in Algeria and then Tunisia and West Africa and to just complete this arc of control in North and West Africa. But the British don't want to have the French right across from Gibraltar threatening their route to India. So they agree to right. maintain the continued rule of the Moroccan Sultan. Um, that stays in place throughout the 19th century, um, even though Morocco is being progressively mm-hmm. penetrated through economic yeah. uh, activity, through capitulations, etc. Mm-hmm. And then later the Germans are involved in, in coming uh, as latecomers to the colonial scramble. They're really interested in Morocco as one yeah. of the last pieces of real estate. And so Morocco maintains its sovereignty uh, for a longer period than some of the other states uh, in the region, precisely Correct. because sort of geopolitically, it's it's important to a lot of major players yeah. uh, in European imperial politics. And to avoid the conflict in Europe, right. they agree to just allow Morocco to, to remain uncolonized. And this shifts with the, in 1904, the British and the French have the Entente Cordiale mm-hmm. and uh, kind of trade Egypt for, Mor- for Morocco. And then in 1911, the Germans and the French are able to um, arrange a transfer in Congo that the mm-hmm. Germans uh, acknowledged France's uh, position and so it's 1907, the French are on the ground in Morocco mm-hmm. and the Spanish also begin to, because they're part of this arrangement with the British is that the, the Spanish can have a zone of control across the straits from Gibraltar. So they're on the ground in 1907 and 1912, a formal treaty is signed between the mm-hmm. French uh, representative and the Moroccan Sultan that inaugurates this protectorate um, form of colonial rule. So the Moroccan Sultan is kept in place, the Moroccan government's kept in place, uh, and France takes over certain functions of government, including, you know, military activity, uh, external diplomatic mm-hmm. representation, et cetera. And so what changes with the protectorate period? Because you mentioned this longer uh, history of sort of economic and increasingly political uh, engagement and intervention of European states in Morocco. Uh, what, you know, sort of in defining this political field, what is what is unique that comes with the protectorate and sort of... The practical terms. It, it it opens the door for the kind of tentative steps that had begun in earlier in the 19th century in the economic structures, uh, but also just the military occupation of Morocco mm-hmm. from 1907. That from 1912 forward, this is now official policy, and and so the mil- French military activity increases. The Spanish don't they do a little bit, but the, their activity is going to increase in the 1920s. And the French begin to, you know, what they call pacify Morocco, um, right. which is comes this euphemism for um, extend using both French troops, Senegalese colonial troops, and then increasingly Moroccan troops, uh, colonial troops, to extend the rule of the government into uh, these spaces within Morocco. Um, what's happened in Morocco? I mean, this entity that we're going to, you know, consider Morocco is in the late 19th century and definitely in the first decade of the 20th century is that largely in response to these incursion, European incursions that the local populations resisting that and and protesting that through armed uh, uprisings, et cetera. And so large swaths of the country are outside the control of either mm-hmm. the Moroccan state or some kind of a nascent French apparatus. Right, you have all these sort of almost non-state or anti-state spaces, whether in the mountains or in the deserts, uh, in a lot of regions, but in, in North Africa at this time that sort of... Um, you know, during the 20th century, what you actually have is sort of the making of a kind of uh, unified state in Morocco. Forget about the identity for a second, whether it's yeah. a Moroccan state or a European state, but actually a state as such as a structure. Exactly. Uh, that's, I mean, back to the, you know, your initial question, this is the profound transformation. What's changing from the 19th century, the 20th century, in the early 20th century is the establishment, the creation, the construction and you know, through violence and through force of a consolidated state space that's really a total uh rupture with a total uh new type of reality mm-hmm. for Morocco. And as you mentioned, this is this is a broader shift. Um sure. this book is definitely drawing a lot on the con- concepts of James Scott, um, who refers to this idea of a enclosure mm-hmm. that's beginning to happen yeah. um, in the early 20th century because of new technologies that states have. Sure. So I'm tracing this process out uh, in Morocco, and, and this is going to really shape a new type of political field uh, that Moroccans had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to Autumn History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Dr. Jonathan Wurtzen about his new book, Making Morocco, out uh, from Cornell University Press. I want to remind our listeners to check out our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, for a link to that book, as well as other books relevant to today's discussion. Jonathan, I want to ask you to take us inside Making Morocco a bit. Give us a little preview of the book and tell us about um, uh, what you call the politics of identity during this protectorate period of Morocco's history. Sure. Um when I was looking at it, maybe to speak a little bit about the title, Making Morocco, um, the book starts off with this quote by the architect, you know, who's ha- the person hailed as the architect of mm-hmm. of the protectorate for sure, and in some ways of modern Morocco, which is a French colonial official named Hubert Lyotet, um, who has this quote as he's sending off um, this one of the Moroccan sultans that he didn't want to work with anymore and says, and now mm-hmm. it's time to make Morocco. And what I'm looking at the book is, is uh, looking at that quote and saying that quote is correct on certain respects and that the French and, you know, Spanish also, these colonial actors had a profound influence on Morocco. And there's Mm -hmm. definitely a new turn in Moroccan history, a new chapter. Um, But that the making of Morocco is not just, there's not a single direction of that that's coming from the colonial state or from these administrators. Um, Moroccans themselves and across a really wide array of Moroccans are mm. integrally involved in making this uh, new entity that's that's coming mm-hmm. into existence in the early 20th century mm-hmm. through these processes. So I think, you know, we ended up with talking about this idea of a, a, a territorial space uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's being created through military conquest in the teens and the 20s into the 1930s. And, and the book looks at that transformation and then looks at what happens within that space, within that field that's been created through those processes. And really the the outcome that I'm interested in in unlocking or, or, or getting into is how both the creation of that field and then the struggles that play with play out within it, how those interactions politicize aspects of collective identity in Moroccan society. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that politicization of collective identity through the lens of uh, what is still like one of the main um, points of contention in identity in Morocco to this day, very much uh, with us in the present, which is um, the collective identities of uh, Moroccan Berbers and Moroccan Arabs. Right. And this is this, you know, this is kind of age old, you know, in Moroccan studies and North African studies, this Arab Berber question is one of those long term sure. historiographical debates and, and, and gets a lot of uh, airplay on both sides of um, deconstructing this uh, binary and or reifying that. Um, and then it's hugely relevant to contemporary politics mm-hmm. of identity in the region. So, what, what I look at in the book um, is again an argument that if you go back 100 years, 150 years before uh, before now, but let's say before this colonial rupture, you this boundary, there, I'm not going to argue that there's no longer term basis for a Berber mm-hmm. identity as an ethno-linguistic uh, category yeah. or for Arab, uh, but there's not a political boundary. There's not a, a politicization of those identities per se. And you couldn't ask, I don't think you would ask someone who would self-identify either way. I'm Arab, I'm Berber, um, until you get into the colonial period. And so the colonial intervention, um, especially the French, um, based upon their early experience in Algeria and the ways that they created this concept of an uh, ethnicization of these these identities, sure. start to implement this in policies in Morocco. And what it does is it sets up it doesn't create Berbers, it doesn't create Arabs, but it politicizes a boundary that then becomes salient. It becomes mm-hmm. relevant for actors. And, and what I look at in the book is how so-called Arab actors uh, react against some of these policies. And this is, um, the French use different educational structures for Arabs and Berbers. They use hmm. different juridical structures. So they use customary law in so-called Berber areas. Mm-hmm. And again, this is this is not a sharp line that just exists out in society. The French are constructing this line. But once they start doing this activity, Arab and Berber become important, politically relevant markers of identity that especially the urban Arabophone elites are going to use in their own political campaigns. So that's something that's been talked about quite a bit. What I was really interested in is an Outside of the cities, outside of the Arabophone elites, the literate elites that produce a lot of the materials that's 
gone into the historiography on this question. What do Berbers, so-called Berbers, think right. about this? Where where are they um, in the teens and the twenties and the thirties as this political field's being created? What are their perceptions about their own identity, about the rest of Morocco, about other levels of collective identity? And I think this is one of the the parts of the book that I I like the most. I, I'm I'm really I think it's one of the most important aspects of the book is uh, a couple of chapters that do a, a rural history again from below mm-hmm. that delve into the rural experience of of populations that are on the edge of the military conquest and being incorporated into sure. uh, under state control. Um, and I was fortunate to you know through really helpful colleagues in Morocco, um, French scholar uh, named Michael Perron, mm-hmm. who alerted me to the existence of a archive of transcribed songs and poetry sure. that were produced and then collected within the Middle Atlas and the High Atlas regions of Morocco. And this is uh, in Tamazight, um, somewhere in Tashalhit. These are the two, yeah. two of the major dialects of, of Berber uh, language in Morocco. And, you know, over the course of 20 or 30 years, um, this French officer and his Moroccan interlocutors are able to go and collect a huge amount of poetry that gives this really intense and insightful commentary on what's happening uh, as tribes are are fighting, resisting colonial intervention, as they're submitting to the colonial power, divides within tribes um, over this question of whether to continue to fight jihad against this Christian invading power, Mm -hmm. to submit to it, different types of struggles or, or uh, divides over the what the legitimacy of the Moroccan sultan sure. is and divides about uh, lamenting the loss of parts of Morocco to, again, you know, what they term as a Christian power, ah, the, the French okay. uh, and the Spanish. And this these poems just are a fascinating kind of window into the social history, political history of these rural regions of Morocco that's not been represented in the existing historiography of this period. Could you elaborate more on the places where we see expressions of identity in the, in, in these, because you right. know, you mentioned in, in that list of sort of subjects that come up in, in, in the songs and, and definitely our listeners who are coming, listening in Turkey will find uh, parallels of uh, 20th century Turkey. But I mean, one of the things that struck me is that although these are songs in different Berber dialects, I mean, the concept of Berber itself here, we can see how it's already like, kind of uh, intertwined with the colonial construct, but they're being collected as, as this sort of, you know, Berber cultural material. But in the examples you gave, Islam seems to be a more relevant marker or the barrier between um, Christian uh, colonial powers and local um, uh, Islamic identity or Muslim identity. You could explain exactly what's going on there. seems more prominent, actually, than the ethno-linguistic one that is being foregrounded by the very collection of these Absolutely. Works. Right. I, I just got back from a trip to Kurdistan and I've been thinking quite a bit uh, uh, comparatively about these questions that are in play in, um, in these geographies in Eastern Anatolia and in similarities and in, in, in differences uh, mm-hmm. in North Africa with, say, Kurdish and Berber populations. And maybe the way to set this up is the contrast where the French are using a kind of absolute category and reifying this entity these these this berber arab divide and ascribing you know essential qualities to the two right. categories um in some ways the arabs themselves are doing the so-called arabs the, these urban national nationalist elites who are mobilizing against um berber specific policies okay. are again constructing a, a single category and, and the book in other chapters gets into all the work they're doing to justify the continuity of a unified Moroccan Muslim Arabizing Arab uh, collective unit. Mm -hmm. Uh, The question on the Berber side, so-called Berber side, um, is is there any sense of that unit in play? Is there a Berber, a a collective sense of Berberness? Um, And what I'm trying to do is unpack the complexities and the, you know, as we all know that identity is, there's there's layer of, layers of identity. There's we're, we have multiple. There's multifaceted yeah. aspects to our identities, 
and and what I look at in these poems is is the di- the different valences, the different layers, um, activation of of different types of identities. And we find is is definitely I say there's a prom, most prominent identity boundary is between Muslim and non-Muslim, Muslim mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. That boundary is uh, the the collective entity of Muslims in Morocco, the Ummah that they re, that they refer to there, mm-hmm. is a kind of both a local Ummah that they do reference a kind of religious community, a religio political community that includes you know what would include Arabs and Berbers mm-hmm. and the Moroccan Sultan. Um, they also reference the broader. Muslim world, they reference, you know, they use this kind of a, a Arab, you know, the, the geographically they use Arabized, uh, Berberized Ara, Arabic words. Um, so El Hurb El Wasta, so the, the Middle West, to the to reference these Algerian troops that are a part of these French contingents coming against them. So they have a geographical sense uh, locally within Morocco about where they're from, their mountain ranges versus other mountain ranges their locality versus lowland areas. They okay. reference cities throughout Morocco. Um, as I mentioned, this one of the major, most a lot of tension is about this boundary between their own tribal groups that have submitted to this colonial entity in these, mm. the trauma of being registered by the French Christian yeah. officer, the tr- trauma of your wife being registered by the French Christian officer, giving your arms over, um, having to have a travel permit to go through these lands where you previously used to be able to travel yeah. with free. So you actually get this kind of real uh, texture on sort of governmentality that's mm-hmm. being introduced into these people's everyday lives. Right. But also how it, how it's, you know, we think of colonial states as sometimes being superficial, right? But that how some of these practices are actually, you know, intimate and, and sort of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, colonial subjects are are very conscious of the fact that these are invasive, uh, though seemingly bureaucratic and and uh, yes, and well, I mean, the most profoundly yeah. intimate uh, aspect of these poems are these duels uh, between men, or the the one that I'm thinking of is between two women who are basically is like the slam poetry against each other, talking trash about how you're sleeping with the French officer, um, you've forsaken Islam, and, and it's really intimate talking about going to the tent of the French officer, et cetera. And so um, this, the, there's a really profound transformation of everyday life uh, within these rural areas of Morocco that you get a very, as, as you mentioned, a very intimate uh, window into that experience. Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Dr. Jonathan Wurtzen talking about his new book, Making Morocco. Uh, we've been talking about the making of new boundaries of identity, uh, specifically uh, between Arabs and Berbers in Morocco, and, and the role that the colonial state and the protectorate plays in sort of creating a new field of uh, political contention over identity. Um, in your book, you also deal with the the issue of Jewish communities in Morocco. Now, this is a this is a familiar theme in the the history of colonialism in North Africa. We've had previous episodes, for example, uh, with Sarah Stein about her work on Jews in the Sahara. Right. Um, there's a lot of work on sort of the le- the special legal status of, of Jews in Algeria, where where they're kind of in this paradoxical in between state, almost a barometer. You can see the right. the inklings of the French colonial government in Algeria based on how they see Jews as either excluded or included Absolutely. within a French or conversely Algerian identity. Um, of course, our, our listeners will know that Morocco is uh, well known for being a, 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 the location of a very large um, Jewish community in, in the Islamic world throughout history. Right. Um, and so maybe you could talk about uh, your, your li- the, the case study you have, the chapter you have on, on, on Jews in Morocco and how it fits into this larger story of, um, you know, colonialism in North Africa. Right. And I think this is, you know, to to think about this in contrast or in comparison with Algeria, with Tunisia, you get, um, it really opens up insight into the specific dynamics that are happening within this colonial political field. And the position of Moroccan Jews uh, is a fascinating place to see this in action. What happens in Morocco, in contrast to Algeria, is that the French very steadfastly do not naturalize them. They do not make them French mm-hmm. uh, as they did in Algeria in 1870. And there's a lot of debates about that 
there's a lot of pressure on the French administration in Morocco from French Jews uh, in France itself. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that to maintain the um, part of the legitimization the French try to do in the protectorate form in Morocco is that the Moroccan Sultan really is the retains sovereignty, retains yeah. his his role as the both a spiritual and somewhat political role in Morocco and in, in integral to that is his relationship to this minority pop, religious mm-hmm. population, yeah. Moroccan Jews. And so Moroccan Jews are caught between um, a cultural assimilate assimilation into French society mm-hmm. um, through educational outreach, et cetera, but a political barrier. They're not allowed to be naturalized and mm-hmm. legally they're separated. They have separate uh, rabbinical courts. Sure. They're caught between uh, Moroccan nationalist, Arabophone nationalist who are lobbying to for their allegiance to the Moroccan uh, mm-hmm. national unit um, as a and, and they sit on this uneasy boundary because they're both included within that as Moroccans and as subjects of the of the Sultan, but they're also kind of on a weird exclusionary boundary because mm-hmm. they've set up Islam as this fundamental category, and so the Muslim community is primary, and this Jewish community sits as a, a minority within that. And then thirdly, there's very active Zionist attempts from the 1920s to mobilize within Morocco and North Africa more broadly. And so Morocco's Jews sit in this really fascinating position um, that over time goes through different stresses. And so you have exclusion um, in a secondary status as Moroccan Jews um, through the 20s and the 30s, tensions with uh, the rise of Nazism, the rise of uh, tensions in Palestine, mm-hmm. Um, and then under Vichy, they benefit from their status as non-French Jews um, and kind of have a period, a bit of a, a year or so, where they're protected from the exclusions that happen when Algerian Jews have mm-hmm. their s- citizenship suspended. Uh, but then through the 1940s, um, with increasing tensions over a, a move towards independence-seeking nationalism in Morocco, uh, increased tensions in Palestine, and then the aftermath of the Holocaust – Moroccan Jews are caught in in a very tenuous kind of insecure position um, that in the 1950s, they're going to remain this critical population, uh, both their democracy, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. they're the largest uh, Jewish community and Muslim majority uh, country. And symbolically, they're at the heart of these questions over what Moroccan identity is. This becomes especially symbolic when after the creation of the state of Israel, yes. very quickly we see that right. in other uh, countries of the Middle East and North Africa, Jews are basically left with no choice but to go to Israel in many right. cases. And then Moroccan, uh, the increase, migration increases in the early 1950s, um, then independence in 56, um, and it's really in the 1960s that you have the mass immigration. Mm-hmm. And, and today you still have, and this is crucially important for the Moroccan right. uh, state, for the Moroccan monarchy, et cetera, for a continuing presence of Moroccan Jews, mostly in Casablanca, that even in their that their presence there, but also in their absence, um, as uh, another great scholar, Omar Boom, has talked about these memories of absence mm. and this, this presence of Moroc- Moroccan Jews um, in their absence um, continues to be really important into contemporary mm-hmm. Moroccan uh the politics of contemporary Moroccan identity. Right. And and how Morocco is perhaps differentiated from some of the other right. uh, countries with which it shares a political uh, legacy of both European colonialism uh, and also, you know, a presence in, in, in the Islamic uh, Middle East and North exactly. Africa region. So let's talk about that. One of the other topics of, you know, on the issue of identity is the, is, is the monarchy yeah. in Morocco um, in your work. Yes. The official... This is part of, you know, in terms of the bigger project of the book, um, Morocco, there's there's some countries that are created um, completely through colonialism. Just look at the, the example of Algeria, I think is the, the primary contrast to Morocco. Um, Morocco has a very long dynastic history that you could think of a Morocco back um, at least into the 700s, the 800s. But what I'm looking at the book is counterintuitive in Moroccan history, which is that colonialism really transforms and absolutely recreates Morocco on many levels. And that's perhaps most surprising or, or a little bit more contentious uh, in with relation to the monarchy, which um, very much sustains and cultivates this idea of continuity mm-hmm. and of I mean, this monarchy has been in existence for close to four centuries. And 
But what happens um, with the creation of the protectorate in Morocco, one is just as a, the pure luck that the monarchy has that the French decide to keep them in power. Um, and mm-hmm. this is definitely in play. It's, it's an open question in 1911, 1912. So they benefit from that um, yeah. kind of happy contingency. Um, they also, it's somewhat counterintuitive that they survive decolonization. If you look at Egypt, if you look at Iraq, you look at, you know, other, mm-hmm. Jor- uh, Jordan's another example like Morocco, where kind of against the odds, the monarchy is able to survive independence and mm-hmm. not to be thrown overthrown through a coup attempt um, because of uh, associating them with delegitimizing them through their associations through the with the colonial power right so the the end of the book really traces the trajectory of the monarchy um, and it looks at this you know one of these the significant aspects of this is the transformation of Muhammad V or Muhammad bin Yusuf who is named the sultan by the French in the mm-hmm. late 1920s. Um, they want him, he's young, he's 19. Um, they want to have a sovereign that will do their will. And part of the fiction of the protectorate is that the Moroccan sultan has to stamp the dahirs or the the decrees and they need, you know, a pliable Moroccan partner who's uh-huh. going to, to enable that. But what happens in the 1930s into the 1940s is that this Mohammed V himself grows into... Uh, a very skillful kind of diplomatic leader who's simultaneously able to placate the French enough that he remains uh, viable Mm -hmm. uh, for their purposes, but also is able to cultivate his own position as the symbolic heart of Moroccan identity that the urban nationalists are starting to mobilize from the 1930s. And what he does uh, after World War II especially is move himself into the primary role as a standard bearer for these claims to protect Moroccan sovereignty um, mm-hmm. against the the French residency there in Morocco and against the French government in Paris. And to the point that, as opposed, I mean, you could look at comparatively in other cases, in Tunisia, you had a, one of the bays um, is similarly uh, in 1943 able uh, trying to push for Tunisian autonomy, but mm-hmm. uh, in the course of the war, in terms of the French reconquest um, by the free French is is exiled to um, back to Nice. Um, it's kind of too early, too much too early, but the Moroccan Sultan in the 1950s um, is able to make this claim for standing for independence, ends up getting exiled in 1953 to Madagascar, but in 1955, when the French need to come up with a solution in Morocco to transition out of the protectorate uh, into uh, negotiating independence, mm-hmm. they bring him back as the their partner. So I trace that kind of trajectory, and one one is this is not a necessary outcome. This is definitely a highly contingent outcome, right. and also look at what happened in that process, and 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 perhaps most crucially is the period after independence in 1956, where Really, there's a, a an array of players that are still in the game in terms of who's going to control the post-independence uh, Moroccan, this new political field, this kind of independent Moroccan political field. And so I look at how the monarchy itself is able to skillfully and adroitly play both uh, a kind of divide and rule strategy vis-a-vis the Moroccan political parties mm-hmm. that, that have kind of emerged through nationalist mobilization um, and also uh, able to ally with certain rural power holders with military actors uh, in the colonial army that's Mm -hmm. now been transferred over into the royal um, armed forces in Morocco and again kind of counterintuitively is able to emerge um, as the dominant player in the Moroccan political field after independence Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast once again. Chris Grayton here with Dr. Jonathan Wurtzen talking about his new book, Making Morocco. So in this discussion of um, the crucial protectorate period in the history of Morocco and uh, the ramifications for the politics of identity, we've touched on a lot of boundaries that are being made, um, boundaries between different ethnicities, 
um, between groups such as Jews and, and Muslims and, and the role of the colonial state, as well as local actors and sort of sh- shaping the outcome outcomes of different contentions that are taking place. I know in your work, uh, you, you deal as well with the issue of gender, women, um, and how they're impacted and how they're part of this uh, process as well. Um, and sort of to wrap up our discussion to conclude, I, I guess I guess my my last question or the last thing I'd like to talk about is sort of the ramifications for understanding Morocco's presence. Right. Uh, present, excuse me. Uh, how do the, the themes that you've studied for the protectorate period, which again ends in the 1950s, speak to what's going on in, in the politics of Morocco today? So the, the book identifies four major aspects of Moroccan identity that I argue were politicized in that colonial period. These are, as you mentioned, this ethnic aspect of Moroccan identity and the boundary of the non-boundary of an Arab-Berber divide, Mm -hmm. the role of Islam, the role of religion um, as a really primary criterion of Moroccan identity that, again, has this sort of ambiguous inclusion and exclusion where Islam is is the, 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 the collective is defined by that, but it also negotiates this ambivalent inclusion of a religious minority, at least mm-hmm. of the Jews. Um, the monarchy, as we mentioned, is another one that gets it, this pillar of Moroccan identity. This, uh, If you look at Moroccan hillsides, if you drive up and down Morocco today, it reads Allah al-Malik al-Watan. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the order is Allah al-Watan al-Malik. Mm-hmm. But this is sort of that, I mean, my slippage sort of reveals this uh, ambivalence is, it was, it's the king primary is the nation uh, primary. Yeah. And the the fourth aspect of this is territory. And so the space of Moroccan, uh, the Moroccan entity. Um, and so, you know, what happens is that what I argue is that, uh, you know, a lot happens obviously between 1956 mm-hmm. and the present. But if you look at the dynamics and, and the ways that identity gets contested and, mm-hmm. and, and especially in the past um, 16, 17 years uh, since Mohammed VI um, mm-hmm. has taken the throne uh, from his father, Hassan II, what you see is this: these pillars, really, these sites of Moroccan identity have are just continually engaged. And right. here, um, and it could use the, 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 the question of gender, which we haven't spoken as much about, um, the position of Moroccan women uh, within Moroccan society and what sort of political salience is uh, ascribed to their position. Um, if you look at the colonial period, everyone is using the status of women to do their boundary work. And so they're defining Arabs sure. and Berbers by a different classification under customary law, under Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between Jewish women and Muslim women is another salient one. Uh, the difference between indigenous or native women and French women, that how ha- that those boundaries in society are are delineated in many respects through the position of women, Moroccan okay. women. Mm-hmm. Um, and another measure of that in the, in which women's status measures identity is education. And this is sure. so. What you see is a sort of continuity through the 20th century from the colonial period forward, where Moroccan women are. And this is you know, more broadly, you know, there's a lot of scholarship that looks at these dynamics in terms of collective identity, nationalism, and the role of gender in that. Um, but in the present Moroccan society, especially under the current king, um, the role of women has been an index, or, or the position of women has been an index to, to measure and gauge Moroccan identity. Um, what he's done is, uh, in, especially in the 2003 reform of the Mudawa now, or the Women's Personal Families Code, um, uses women's status or legal status to do work uh, both on the Islamic identity of Morocco. And mm-hmm. so he uses uh, a Maliki kind of cohort of legal scholars to do this work and justifies the reform of the code um, on that basis. And so he's pulling the Islamic credentials of Moroccan identity there. He's also measuring development or measuring um a kind of progressive uh, vision of Moroccan identity by I mean, this this code is not ideal, but is is a leaps and bounds above what the Moroccan code was before, and then somewhat to comparison to other neighboring states. Um, and so he does modernity through this the yeah. position of women. So the monarchy did that work on the women's status in response to mobilization by women's groups, yeah. and what you see 
with this monarch, uh, the, the present king is uh, an attempt um, to co-opt, kind of incorporate bottom-up pressures from Moroccan society mm. uh, in ways that build it into the official discourse of, mm-hmm. of Moroccan identity. Something simpler, similar happened with the Berber cultural movement that got yeah. active in the 1980s and 1990s, that the present monarchy, beginning with the creation of a royal institute for Amazir culture in 2003, and then in 2011, through the official recognition of Tamazight or Berber language as a co-national language, um, has also brought in uh, this this bottom-up pressure for uh, the recognition of this ethnic uh, of a bi-ethnic sort of national identity, and has refashioned this narrative. Um, and the other, I mean, the third, what well, the third uh, aspect of this is this continued salience of Moroccan territory, right. which has been most problematically politicized uh, with the in the 1970s through the incorporation of Sahara right. uh, the occupation of Sahara by Morocco the Moroccan government Moroccan military um, which that pillar of territory remains of um, one of the pro- most contentious focal points for Moroccan identity um, and then finally and in terms of Islam the monarchies really active in cultivating sustaining projecting, a very specific brand of what Edmund Burke talks about is Moroccan Islam, which has this colonial genealogy. But um, with the present monarchy really cultivates this idea of a tolerant, good Moroccan Islam mm-hmm. that he, the, the king is commander, the faithful um, is the both custodian, the guardian um, yeah. and the cultivator of this tolerant, inclusive framework uh, of Islam. And again, the, the position of, protected position of Jews in Moroccan society is a part of that um, and the various um, types of activities that the king sponsors to uh, including international conferences on the protection of minority rights mm-hmm. within Muslim societies which was a conference held this spring in Marrakesh that very actively puts forward this vision of a, of a Moroccan Islam and so yeah. you see this uh the p- politics of identity and these different four different categories really in play in contemporary Morocco. Right. It's not, I want to maybe one final word there is that this again is not just a top down process sure. and the monarchy is very powerful and has a lot of influence there. But at the same time, Moroccan actors within society themselves are driving this agenda quite a bit. And there's a lot of contention, right. continuing contention um, through ongoing demonstrations, through protests, through right. collective mobilization right you see you see the moroccan government responding to uh popular movements in morocco and also with this issue of branding responding to the continued interest of the rest of the world in morocco whether for tourism or for you know for, for political reasons uh and sort of navigating um uh, these different um, sort of pressures or demands in a way that are almost in, in play and um and and as you sketched out, it, it really is clear that as as we move from the protect, protectorate period to the post colonial period in, into into the twenty first century, that in many ways, um, political actors in Morocco, as as as, you, as you've laid it out here, are operating in that political field that is really uh, created uh, during the colonial period. I mean, right. it's, we haven't talked that much about nationalism, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, often this is discussed through the lens of, of nationalism, right? Yes. I started off, you know, this to be a study about nationalism and I realized that in some ways it's the wrong question. Right. Um, it's a part of the question, but it's a broader issue of, of identity and that, um, Right. Really, I think in terms of the macro historical contribution I was trying to make, because there's, a, there's an, a, a generation, a couple of generations of fantastic scholarship on Morocco mm-hmm. that we benefit from. What I was trying to do in the book is create a container in which to put these these studies and the different contributions that are being made into a larger framework that can mm-hmm. encompass them. That's not just a national right. story where the outcome is Moroccan nationalism, because there isn't one single Moroccan nationalism. What I am trying to do with the book is, is create the space for the opening up of these different political, these sites where mm-hmm. where identity is politically contentious. Right. And, and that we can kind of encompass not just... Uh, the kind of official national narrative of a Moroccan identity, but that it, it, and, or the opposite extreme where it's just 
subaltern history. It's just mm-hmm. micro history. Yeah. It's the the excluded histories, but it's putting those two together and saying this is the whole, mm-hmm. um, in, in or it's the space for the whole, which we can see both and on those two things. Yeah. And and uh, you know. Uh, it's it's admirable task that you've undertaken grappling with a very slippery and and, and very uh, complicated thing, which is again identity very much a multi-layered and, <laughs> right. and contingent um, process and I really like the way you've kind of set it up in this book and really enjoyed getting this uh, introduction uh, to sort of the political history uh, of, of Morocco during the colonial period and, and its its importance for understanding uh, contemporary political issues in, in Morocco and North Africa today. Thanks so much. And th- thanks for talking to us today. Now, for our listeners who want to check out that book, Making Morocco, Colonial Intervention and the Politics of Identity, out from Cornell University Press, just go to our website where you'll find a link uh, in the bibliography. We also have a short reading list provided by Dr. Wurtzen for people who want to read more on some of the uh, issues that were relevant to today's discussion. Uh, I want to remind you all we have many other episodes dedicated to Morocco and North Africa available uh, through our partners at Tajin. Check out that website, tajin.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. And I also want to remind you all to, if you haven't already, to get in on the discussion happening on Facebook. We've got over 20,000 fans on the Ottoman History Podcast Facebook page commenting and following our latest content. That's all for this episode. Join us next time. Until then, take care. (laughs) 